Hey, podcast family, I know that I have covered the topic of supplemental maternal oxygen use in labor before, but it looks like everywhere I turn around, there's yet a new article that's out showing its potential harms to the fetus. Wait a minute, isn't maternal oxygen use in labor supposed to be helping the child? Well, it's more complicated than that. So in this podcast, we're going to cover a new article that's actually not even out yet, but is out as a published ahead of print publication. This is from the American Journal of OBGYN. The title is The Duration of Intrapartum Supplemental Oxygen Administration and Umbilical Cord Oxygen Content. Does it actually do anything or is it potentially harmful? Well, let's find out now. Medicine moves fast, so let's stay up to date with Clinical Pearls. Okay, so if you haven't figured out by now, it's kind of my pet peeve, the use of maternal oxygen use in labor when moms are not hypoxic. And now in the time of COVID, there's some concern that using maternal oxygen supplementation, especially something that potentially can aerosol maternal respiratory secretions, could be potentially harmful for healthcare providers if the patient is under investigation or actually has COVID. But what about the baby effects? I mean, after all, that's why we're using maternal oxygen, right, to help the baby, especially in times of class 2 fetal heart rate tracings. But the evidence over the last decade has really mounted that maternal oxygen supplementation intrapartum, even for category 2 strips, unless the mother is truly hypoxic, can actually be harming the child. Before I get into the new publication from the American Journal of OBGYN, which was just released June the 1st of 2020, but is not yet out in paper print, let's take a look at some of the historic data. The Cochrane Review published in 2012 that, quote, there's not enough evidence to support the use of prophylactic oxygen therapy for women in labor, nor to evaluate its effectiveness for fetal distress. And this was owing to the lack of any randomized controlled trials. Now, an important concern in the use of maternal hyperoxygenation for fetal distress is the potential negative effect on the umbilical cord pH. In a study by Thorpe et al., 86 term partituents were randomized to receive additional oxygen or normal care during the second stage of labor. The main outcome measured were cord blood gases and co-oximetry values. The mean cord blood gas values did not significantly differ between the intervention and the control group. However, Thorpe et al. found significantly more arterial pH values less than 7.2, ironically in the group receiving extra oxygen. The lowest pH in arterial blood gas values that they found was 7.09, so thankfully it wasn't in the pathological range of less than 7.00, but is still lower when they received supplemental oxygen. They also found that the duration of oxygen therapy was inversely related to arterial cord pH, whereas APGAR scores and hospital admission rates did not differ between the groups. Now remember, it's my perspective, as well as that of the literature, that what really matters is not the APGAR score per se, because that tends to have some intra-observer variability, but the true objective marker of fetal distress is that arterial cord pH. 
So Thorpe et al. concluded that prolonged oxygen treatment during the second stage of labor leads to a deterioration of cord blood gases at birth. An important fact is that only patients with reassuring fetal heart rate patterns, however, were included in that study. So ominous fetal hypoxia at the start of oxygen delivery was very unlikely. Remember, these were basically category one strips, so that's something to keep in mind. So their study did not address the effect of maternal hyperoxygenation in cases of suspected fetal distress. But the principal focus of our podcast today is that new article from the American Journal of OBGYN that specifically used oxygen on suspected fetal distress or impending fetal distress, which were category two. But remember, we'll get to that in just a minute. Another concern is the potential formation of oxygen-free radicals in the child with prolonged excessive maternal oxygen use. Now, a lot of this data can also be extrapolated from neonatal studies. What we do know is that neonatal resuscitation with 100% oxygen can lead to an increase in neonatal mortality and morbidity, including bronchopulmonary disease and retinopathy mainly in premature infants. However, the increase in fetal PO2 due to maternal hyperoxygenation will never reach the levels obtained by the direct application of 100% oxygen directly to the fetus. Nonetheless, there is mounting evidence that supplemental maternal oxygen use does actually harm placental oxygenation and puts the baby potentially at risk. All right, we come back. Let's take a look at that new article from June 2020 in the Gray Journal. In the Gray Journal, which is the American Journal of OBGYN, under the section SMFM Statement, there's a new article that will soon be going to print. The title is The Duration of Interpartum Supplemental Oxygen Administration and Umbilical Cord Oxygen Content. In this study, the authors tested the hypothesis that a longer duration of supplemental oxygen exposure and labor was associated with higher umbilical cord O2 content. I mean, that's the whole idea, right? We're giving mom oxygen to hopefully increase the fetal exposure to oxygen. This was a planned secondary analysis of a randomized non-inferiority trial comparing oxygen to room air in laboring patients. Patients were randomized to 10 liters per minute O2 or room air at any point in active labor when they developed a category 2 tracing that otherwise required resuscitation. The primary outcome for this analysis was umbilical vein PO2. Remember that the oxygen content in the umbilical vein is going from the placenta to the child. The secondary outcome was the umbilical artery PO2. These outcomes were compared between patients with short and long durations of oxygen exposure defined as less than the 75th percentile and greater than the 75th percentile for duration. Outcomes were also compared between room air, short oxygen, and long oxygen groups. Among the 99 patients with paired and validated cord gases included in the study, umbilical vein, PO2, was significantly lower, yeah, that's lower, in patients who received longer durations of O2 compared to those who received shorter durations. Now, there was no difference in umbilical artery PO2 or other cord gases between short and long-term oxygen groups. 
other methods of intrauterine resuscitation were similar between the short and the long-duration O2 group. There was no difference in the umbilical artery or umbilical vein, PO2, when compared between room air, short-duration O2, and long-duration groups. The authors concluded that long durations of O2 exposure are actually not associated with higher cord PO2. In other words, the whole reason we're giving mom extra oxygen is the idea that we're going to increase the umbilical vein oxygen content. But that's actually what did not happen according to this study. In fact, patients with longer O2 exposure had lower umbilical vein PO2, suggesting impaired placental oxygen transfer with prolonged oxygen exposure. In other words, the longer mom had that mask on getting oxygen, the worse the oxygen in the umbilical vein actually was. As a clinical takeaway, the authors made this statement. The results of this study suggest impaired placental oxygen transfer with prolonged oxygen exposure, and there needs to be a closer look at the safety and the efficacy of prolonged maternal oxygen supplementation for the treatment of Category 2 fetal heart rate tracings. Okay, so if giving maternal oxygen doesn't work in the absence of maternal hypoxia, what's the best way to do intrauterine fetal resuscitation? Well, of course, it's IV fluid hydration, putting the patient on her side, and if tachycyclic Systole is at work, then giving the patient a tocolytic to help the baby have some response and some diastole and better blood flow in between contractions. And of course, remember that if category 2 tracings persist, or obviously if they progress to category 3, then act quickly to make the decision to proceed to cesarean section if no other cause can be found or corrected, and do so in a timely manner to prevent fetal deterioration. All right, podcast family, we have covered the new American Journal of OBGYN publication soon to be in print. The lead author is Watkins. Actually, one of the other authors is George McCones, right here out of the University of Texas at Austin at Dell Medical School. Thanks for being part of our podcast family. We'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls.